Our scripture passage today comes from the Apostle according to John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. This is the story of Jesus' very first miracle. Uh, Before we read this, though, let us pause for a moment in prayer. Good and wonderful Father, Lord, we thank you uh, for every gift that you have given us, Lord, and we thank you for your holy word residing in our hearts, Lord, and given as it is written in these words of Scripture. And as we come to this word today, Lord, we ask for your spirit to be in our hearts and our minds, Lord, to open our heart and mind and to teach us and instruct us, Lord, knowing we can understand none of these things without your spirit, Lord, to guide us as we read, as we hear, so that we may understand. Lord, bless this holy reading of your holy word, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is the gospel according to John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Listen now to the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you go to an American wedding, there are certain traditions that you have to acknowledge. Certain things that have to happen at almost every single wedding. Right? The bride is going to wear white. Right? That happens at every wedding. You're going to have a nice party afterwards that we call a reception. That is definitely a requirement of a wedding. You're going to have the first dance of the bride and groom. They're going to throw the bouquet at one point, probably. They're going to cut the cake and feed each other and maybe stuff in each other's face and everything and be funny about it there. Now, one of the longest traditions we have, I mean, the tradition that takes the longest at a wedding, is the wedding toast. Now, these can be sometimes a highlight of the wedding, a real touching and poignant moment. Or sometimes they can drag on so long, you're just like, come on, let's get it over with. Just say a toast so we can drink and say, here, here, let's stand in here with our wine glasses or champagne glasses while you go on and on and on. 
So now in my line of work, you can imagine I've been to a lot of weddings. And I've seen a lot of wedding toasts. And I have figured out how to make the perfect wedding toast. And it comes down to three simple rules. Three simple rules for the perfect wedding toast. Now, this is not going to get you a memorable toast necessarily, but at least if you follow these rules, that the people at the wedding won't regret asking you to do the wedding toast. And they might even ask you to do another one one day. Three rules. Okay. First rule, keep it short. Okay? Short. You don't have to have a big, long wedding toast, okay? We don't need to know your whole history of your relationship with the bride. You don't need to give us every event that happened to you from kindergarten till the day that y'all rushed together at sorority, okay? We don't need to know all that. Keep it short, okay? Second rule, say something funny. Make it funny. Now, this is where people get in a lot of trouble, okay? You don't have to make it crazy funny. It doesn't have to be gut-busting funny. Just a nice little joke. And I would advise you to run the joke by somebody else. Okay? Especially if you're one of the younger guys in the wedding party giving a toast, please run the joke by somebody else, preferably like a mom. <laughs> All right? There's some stories that sound great with, in the frat house with your fraternity brothers that are not so great at a wedding. Okay, I've seen the toast of, hey man, you remember that one time that you got arrested and your parents still don't know about it? You know, no, no. Don't bring that story up at the wedding. So make it short, make it funny, and the third rule is make it poignant. Say something touching, but not, not mushy. Just a little bit touching, just something that'll bring a little tear to the eye. And you don't have to work that hard, it's a wedding. Most people come loaded with tears. So just something a little bit touching will usually get the tears running a little bit, and you'll have a great wedding toast. Well, let me give you an example of what I mean. Perfect wedding toast, okay? John 2, we read here today, has got in it what I think is the greatest wedding toast ever given. It's got all the elements of a great wedding toast. It's short. It's actually funny when you understand it in its context, and it's very poignant. In fact, it is so poignant, it is prophetic. Greatest toast ever given at a wedding. And as far as I know, the only wedding toast that has made it into the Bible. So if it's not the greatest, at least it's up there with the greatest. So this toast, obviously, was given at a wedding. It was a wedding at Cana, and that was in Galilee, kind of where Jesus had his ministry centered. And this was before his public ministry really got started. And Jesus is invited to this wedding. He's there with his mom. His disciples were invited to. And they're at this wedding, and a terrible thing happens, this giant social blunder. The host runs out of wine. It didn't start out like a dry reception, but they ran out of wine, which means now they have a dry reception. And it's an unintentionally dry reception. And so the hosts are mortified. This is awful. This is terribly embarrassing. But it's kind of understandable how it could happen. The wedding receptions there were not the wedding receptions like we have today where it's four hours and the venue kicks you out because they get ready for the wedding the next day. These are traditional wedding receptions that could last for days at a time. 
I'm talking about huge parties where the whole community comes by. You're not even sure how many people are showing up. But regardless, it's still this great social blunder and a social embarrassment. And so Mary's friends, obviously, with the, with the host, and so she goes to help out. And she says, Jesus, they ran out of wine. And Jesus doesn't want to do anything. Really, he says, kind of, this is done in my business. I'm not ready to start my ministry yet. But Mary kind of turns to the servants and just says, well, do whatever he tells you and walks off, knowing full well that Jesus is going to help her out because he is a righteous man and he's an obedient son. And the commandment says, honor your mother and father. And Jesus, to honor his mother, is going to do as he asks and he's going to help him out. So he tells the servants, they got these big tubs, these vats. He says they're like 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And they're used for a purification or this washing ritual that, that, uh, that, that the Jews did at this time. And like I said, you got six of them, about 20, 30 gallons. And Jesus tells the servants, he goes, I want you to fill these up. And so it says they fill them up to the brim. And Jesus is about to turn all of this into wine. And if, and if you're wondering, like I was, well, how much wine did he make? If you're looking at your standard bottle of wine, he made 600 to 900 bottles. I mean, this is a gratuitous amount of wine that he's made here. But all he does, he, he, he fills them up, says he fills them to the brim, and he tells the servants to go take it to the master of the feast. Now, this was an important part because the master of the feast had to approve the wine, and it wasn't uh, like our wine where we drink it straight out the bottle. They always mix their wine with water, and the, and the mixture of water would depend on the quality of wine and also the time of day or the time that you are in the wedding reception. So the master of the feast had to try it and to taste it to make sure that it was mixed properly. So, so they bring it to the master of the feast, and he has no idea what's happening. It says he doesn't know anything about this miracle. And as soon as he tastes it, he's amazed. He's like, wow, this is some good wine. This is some of the, I mean, it was some of the best wine he ever had. So he actually brings the bridegroom up to this. This is what a big moment he is. And this is where he makes his toast. And it says here in verse 10 what this toast is. He said, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So we see it's, it's a short toast. It's nice, it's short. That's the first rule of a good toast. It's short, right there to the point, only about two lines. But you may not notice this, but it's actually a funny toast. He's actually making a joke here. And, and it's hard for us to get the joke because... The translators of this always translate this verse improperly. And this is not a matter necessarily of my opinion saying how I would translate it. The translators will admit that they translate this verse improperly because they're very uncomfortable about what this verse is saying. There's a word in here where it says drunk freely. When people have drunk freely, it kind of sounds like when they've had a, they, they, they're not thirsty anymore. They've drunk what they want and they're not thirsty anymore. But the Greek word here is methothosin. And methothosin literally means intoxicated. It means drunk. And I know why the translators are nervous about this. Because they know if they put drunk in here, somebody's going to read this and say, hey, the Bible says it's okay to get drunk. Isn't that great? But that's not what they're saying at all. That's not the point. The point is, this guy's the, the master of the feast is making a joke, and he's also making a statement of fact. And it's actually a pretty good joke. And when you read it right, it's, I think it's kind of funny. He says, normally, people let the good wine first, and when everybody is drunk, they give them the bad wine. Now, it's not as funny as I had to explain it to you. Explain jokes are never funny, but it's kind of the modern equivalent of, 
if you go to someone's house for a party, when you first get there, they'll serve you the craft brew, the good stuff. But if you stay at that party long enough, and if you hang out at that house long enough, eventually they're going to give you Milwaukee's best. <laughs> you see, it was, a, it was funny. It was a nice little joke he was saying. Normally, people serve the good wine first. When everyone's drunk, then they break out the bad stuff. But, but, and this is where the toast turns poignant and prophetic. It says, you have saved the best until now. He had no idea how profound he is being because this master of the feast had no idea where this wine came from. But all he did was he tasted, and, and then as soon as he tasted, he gave this utterance by the power of the Holy Spirit. He declared, you have saved the best until now. And he was given an important message to all of Israel. You see, Israel, when they're thinking at their time of their nation, they'd been through so much turmoil. They'd been through exile. They'd been through slavery. They'd been through conquest from another empire. And when they look back at their nation, the best time, the very best time that God had given them, was during the kingdom period. The days of King David, the days of King Solomon, when they were their own kingdom, when they were out there beating other guys at war, when they weren't afraid of anybody, when they were in control of their own, their own nation and their own people, and they looked back and they said, this is the best time God has given us, and it was in the past. And they were looking forward for a Messiah, but even the Messiah was just going to give them the past again. The Messiah they were looking for was another King David. He was going to just come and restore what David and what Solomon had lost. He was going to bring the good old days back again. Because that was the best that God could do. But that's not what Jesus was there for. Jesus did not come to restore an old kingdom. Jesus came to give them a new kingdom. The plan of God was not to give Israel their old glory back. It was to give them a new glory. Christ didn't come to give the, the, Israel, the Israelites something as good as they had before. He was giving something better than they had ever experienced. He saved that best moment until then, the advent of our Christ. We kind of fall in the same trap too, don't we? We think about human life and the world. When was it the best? In the Garden of Eden. It's before the fall before all these awful things happened in the world, and that, that was the best God was going to do, was right there in the life in the garden. And the best that we could be is that new Adam and Eve, living in that pure innocence and bliss. But that's not what God has promised us, to go back to the garden. Christ, when he returns, is not going to return to restore an old glory. He's not going to return to restore an old life. Christ says, I will make all things new. He's not giving us back the life at the old garden. He's coming to make for us a new paradise. It's going to be better than it was originally. It was going to be better than that first model. He's going to make to us not an old Adam and Eve. He's going to make to us a new people, a new church, a new community, a new humanity. In other words, the best is yet to come. It's real easy for us to think the wrong way. 
I mean, the best when we look at life, isn't it the best? Usually the younger age, the younger period, that first stage. You know, when things get old, they just kind of fizzle out. And they lose their luster. It's like that song by John Cougar Mellencamp. Oh yeah, life goes on. Long after the thrill of living is gone. But when it's new, when it's young, that's when it's exciting. I think a new TV show comes out. Everybody likes it. It's exciting and fun. And then after a few seasons, the writers get lazy. We kind of get used to the same old plot points. And uh, it gets dull after a while. A new restaurant that comes out. Everybody's going there. They've got that new excitement and energy of a new place. And then uh, we get tired of the menu. The wallpaper fades. The ovens get old and don't cook as well anymore. The next new big thing comes out and takes over. Even life kind of feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? It's better when we were younger. We were stronger. We were better looking. We were full of energy and optimism. But then the years go by and the excitement wanes. That was the good old days. That's when life was good. We need to go back to those good old days. That's the way of the world. It's not the way of our Lord. It makes perfect sense that this prophecy was spoken about a glass of wine because wine is one of the few things that we know gets better with age. And life in Christ is like that fine wine. It always gets better with age. Out in the world... Things get older, they get weaker, they get tired, they get sick, and life becomes less. The thrill goes out. But life in Christ gets better every single day. A life in Christ that's committed to a spiritual walk with Jesus, we get mature over the years. We achieve a deeper, richer relationship with God and with others and with the world around us. In the life in Christ, as we grow, we develop a new appreciation on life on all of our experiences. It can be the same way with the marriage. It makes sense that this prophecy was not only spoken over a glass of wine that can get better with age, but also a marriage that can also get better with age. Except in worldly marriages, best years are the first, aren't they? The wedding, the reception, the honeymoon, those first few years of newlywed bliss. And then the years go by, the passion grows cold, you wake up and you think, am I next to the same person every single morning? But a Christian marriage is different. And not just a marriage of Christian people, a, Christ, a marriage where both, both parties of the couple are committed to living a Christian marriage in a Christian way according to the principles of Christ. That kind of marriage gets better with time. That kind of marriage, the relationship is deeper and more meaningful as time goes by. It was a prophetic toast not only over the life of Israel, not only over us, it was a prophetic toast over the marriage as well. This, for the bride and the groom, is what your marriage can be. See, in life in the world, best years are behind us. But the life in Christ... The best is yet to come.
You know, it makes sense that Jesus chose a wedding to perform his first miracle. It makes sense that he chose a wedding that this prophetic utterance would be given about our life in Christ. You know, Jesus was a big fan of weddings. Huge fan of weddings. He always talked about himself as being the bridegroom, and we, the church, as the bride of Christ. Talked about his own ministry in terms of a wedding. Several times in a parable, a wedding was the scene of the parable. And if you look at the miracle today, the miracle that does his first miracle is a miracle to make sure the wedding party can continue. That's how big a fan of weddings our Messiah is. But you know, he's not too big a fan of funerals. Jesus never spoke that highly of funerals. I'm not sure he even really liked funerals. Completely disrespected them sometimes. The very first time we hear a funeral mentioned in the Gospels, a guy wants to be a disciple. Hey, Jesus, can I be your disciple? I just got to go to a funeral first. It's my dad's funeral, though. And Jesus says, no. He said, no, let the dead bury the dead. Who cares about that? Just a funeral. No respect for funerals at all. And you know, every funeral that Jesus went to, he ruined. He ruined them. He went to Lazarus' funeral. They already paid for the tomb. Already paid for the wrapping. You know, they got the flowers paid for and the funeral and probably the meal. And here Jesus comes and ruins it completely and raises them from the dead. His own funeral he ruined too. Ruined his own funeral. His mother and the ladies come with this nice expensive perfume to anoint the body and he's not even there. He's risen out of the tomb. That's how our Savior is. And that says something critical about his personality and his character. He ruins funerals. And he celebrates weddings. Our God destroys funerals, but he performs a miracle to keep the wedding going. What a great Savior we have. And I don't think Jesus really hates funerals. I mean, they're necessary now. We live in an age of grief and mourning. Jesus said, well, while the bridegroom is with the guests, the guests are not going to mourn, but as soon as the bridegroom leaves, that's when you can mourn. Christ is with us in spirit, but he's not with us in body anymore. So now, we, the guests, are in an age of mourning. But that age is going to come to an end. Our bridegroom is going to return to us. And in that day, Jesus is going to ruin every single funeral that ever was and every single funeral that will be. All those nice caskets, all those expensive headstones are going to be worthless one day. They're going to be ground into dust. Because Christ will call us all to new life again. The age is coming when every funeral, every grief, every tear will be done and Christ will bring with him the great wedding feast of our God. It's going to be the greatest party of all time. And to show you how great this wedding toast was, at the feast of Christ, we will all lift our glasses and give the exact same toast. I'm going to say, Lord, you have saved the best until now. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.